week. Uh, our text today comes from uh, Joshua again, Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go out and spy the land. And the men went up and spied Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put on dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hand of the Amorites or to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have taken away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall be near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he that in all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdeh was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Camry, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his son and daughters and his donkeys and donkey, his oxen and donkeys and sheep in his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? 
the Lord bring trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remained to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. And uh, also we will read from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be reading uh, verses uh, 4 through 9. Though I myself has re- reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and he and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteous from God that depends on faith. Okay, so we are uh, continuing our study of the book of Joshua and uh, specifically we're focusing on issues of identity, who is us and who is them. And uh, for the last few weeks, we have been uh, looking uh, at the importance of, of worship to the story of Joshua. And my argument has been that the book of Joshua has taken these stories about the conquest of Canaan and made them less about military and battles and more about worship. And uh, we have seen uh, the importance the text is placed on things like ritual, like circumcision, the Passover, the building of memorials, marching around uh, Jericho, uh, blowing ram's horns, as well as other elements like the priest and the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, very little attention is devoted to the actual battles themselves. Um, The other issue that we've been looking at is the Israelites have been encountering various boundaries, uh, things like the Jordan River, the walled city of Jericho. And what has enabled the Israelites to cross those boundaries is worship. In doing so, Israel has learned who God is and who they were in relationship to God. In these ways, we have seen uh, how the worship of God is central to their identity as a people, much more so than any typical markers of group identity uh, that would have been prevalent in the ancient Near East, things like ethnicity, ancestry, or geography. In fact, one of the points that I've been making is that actually Joshua is deeply subversive uh, to the ideas of the ancient world, uh, to ideas that probably many Israelites would have uh, would have held to as they uh, heard uh, the words of this book. Uh, it challenges notions of identity, and I have been uh, using kind of as an example to help us understand this, the, the Bruce Springsteen hit Born in the USA is an analogy. Uh, because it's such a great example of a song that's basically been misunderstood since it debuted in, you know, basically the height of U.S. triumphalism and uh, uh, patriotism in the mid eighties. Uh, the chorus of this song sounds like this pan to, uh, American exceptionalism, yet the verses totally contradict that message, revealing the story of those who suffered the effects of the failures of things like U S foreign policy in Vietnam and the collapse of the manufacturing sector. 
And I want to argue that Joshua kind of works the same way. Uh, it's often been understood as this simple story about Israelite triumphalism. And so, you know, we read it and we're like, okay, well, if you follow the Lord and you have courage, you can conquer your enemies, you know. But almost at every turn, these ideas are challenged in Joshua. And that's the what we have to understand as we read this book. Um, the now, uh, if you, you know, going back to my analogy about born in the USA, the chap- chapter one, um, this, this chapter kind of acts more like the verses to born in the USA. It subverts the surface narrative. Uh, so as this chapter opens, we find the Israelites encountering another boundary. Uh, this time it's the city of Ai. Now, it's a place we actually don't know much about. Uh, we know is we know that it's located near Bethel. Bethel's the you know place in uh, Genesis where um, Jacob saw uh, the ladder that went to heaven. Uh, Abraham built an altar there. Um, however, we do know uh, one more thing about I that's kind of key to understanding this chapter. Uh, so, so the name I actually means ruin, uh, which is kind of weird. Okay. Like, you know, why name your city ruin? Uh, so, you know, that's going to be an important fact. Just file it away right now as we encounter this. But I think, I think this kind of helps to start seeing what's going on in this story. Uh, now the way the story unfolds, uh, the way it's told, we the hearer are given two facts that the participants of the story are not given. Uh, first, we are told the anger of the Lord is burning against Israel. And second, it's because of this man, Achan. We know this, the characters in the story don't. And so the point of that is it creates for us some suspense. Uh, we are uh, wondering, like, how are these facts going to re- be revealed? And the tension in the story is going to be resolved by revealing these facts. So, so that's kind of how this story, or how this chapter works as a story. Uh, the chapter is about hidden information that is gradually revealed to the characters in the story. And the problem, uh, the main, the main conflict is this story results from this concept we introduced last week of haram. So when it talks about, um, you know, it keeps mentioning the objects devoted to destruction. Okay, the devoted objects. Uh, what that is is it's a translation of the word harem, and harem is another one of those practices that probably made like total sense to the Israelites, but it's kind of hard for us to understand. We just don't think in these terms. But essentially, what harem is is it's a removal of the object into the divine realm, into God's realm. Uh, In the case of this story, it's the plunder uh, from the city of Ai. And the problem is that the objects that Achan takes uh, were designated to God. They were haram. They were supposed to be transferred to the divine realm, but Achan keeps them in his own. Okay, so that's, that's the problem here. Now, one of the issues, I think, when we read the story, which is, you know, kind of quite disturbing, I think, okay? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this guy gets stoned and everything like that. It, it, it's it's hard to know what to do with it. In fact, uh, you know, not my favorite thing to preach. You know, when I was studying this week, uh, this was not something I was looking forward to. But, you know, one of the, the issues that um, we quickly jump to as we read this is, is why does the anger of God burn against all of Israel when Achan is the one at fault. 
And part of this answer goes back to our theme of identity. Uh, Joshua has been emphasizing wholeness and unity. Uh, the word, um, the Hebrew word kol, which means all or every, is like repeated like a massive amount of times. And, and part of the point that uh, Joshua is trying to make is the importance of unity, the community together, that it's them obediently following God that leads to success. Now, I also uh, suspect that this idea of harem may serve another purpose, okay? So let's just kind of think about this, okay? Now, I, I don't really have any great evidence for this. So I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, but th let's just think about this. In the ancient world, why did you go attack a city? Uh, particularly a city that's called like ruin. Like, why would you do that? And the answer is because you want to take their stuff, right? I mean, that's partly what happened in the ancient world. Uh, plunder by war bands was a profitable enterprise. and it, it happened all the time. I mean, you know, just think about the Viking invasions in England and things like that, right? Uh, so one of the things that harem uh, may be about is a way of demonstrating that the battles Israel was fighting for were not about plunder. Therefore, Achan's actions were sending a message that was contrary to what God and Israel were supposed to be about. However, it would have still reflected on the Israelites as a whole. Uh, so in this case, one person's actions had a negative effect on the whole community and had to be dealt with. Um, but uh, as we continue to read the text, we find that, that perhaps uh, that may be true, but perhaps more than just Achan is at fault, okay? So look at the text closely if you read it. Uh, first, we have spies being sent out to I before the battle. And we already know uh, from chapter two, sending out spies, typically not a great move for Israel, okay? Uh, the language in this chapter uh, recalls uh, specifically when the 12 the 12 spies were sent out uh, from Kadesh Barnea and their report was so overwhelmingly negative. You know, they warned the Israelites, uh, like, it's a bad idea to conquer Canaan. We are like grasshoppers before them. And that upset God so much, their lack of faith, their disbelief, that it led to a 40-year delay in Israel conquering Canaan. You know, they weren't wandering the wilderness because they were lost. They were wandering the, the wilderness because uh, God was uh, upset at their lack of faith. And so then we have this other story in Joshua, right? The two spies get sent out to the, to, uh, to Jericho. And what's the first thing they do? They go to a Canaanite prostitute. And it's only because of Rahab that that story actually turns out well. So now we have, again, these spies being sent out. And their report is uh, kind of different than the one, uh, you know, earlier. Uh, this time they're overconfident. Uh, they report, look, you know, I, it's uh, not going to be any problem. In fact, we don't need to use all of Israel. And so uh, this is the second point here. Um, the plan is to only send a small contingent to take the city. Now, think about that. That's a, in direct contrast to this theme of unity that Joshua has been making. You know, he keeps talking about all the people going out. And so, um, you know, remember that there's this whole incident at the beginning of the book when there's these uh, three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, and they want to remain in the land east of Jordan. And 
that crisis of them wanting to to take the land that's not really been uh, prescribed to them uh, gets resolved only when they agree to fight alongside the Israelites. Like you, we we can't be divided. Okay. Uh, now um, you know it, it. It it we have this point where Israel is being divided. So you know there's kind of a hint like we're going against uh, this idea about unity. So third. There's something ominous about just I itself, okay? It means ruin. Uh, it's actually located near, um, we're told it's located near two towns, Bethel and Beth Haven. So, so Beit is like house in uh, Hebrew. So one of them means house of God, and the other one means like house of sin. Okay, right? You know, you almost have like this choice situation presented. It's not, like I almost think of it like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Which one are they going to choose, you know? So so there's kind of like this choice before them. Do they choose God or do they choose sin? And we know that choice usually doesn't go real well in the Bible. Uh, but fourth, and this is probably the most important point here, we have no divine command to attack us. All right. So, so, you know, throughout Joshua, we have this divine command, but this attack in I seems like totally about human initiative. And maybe, you know, the Israelites are attacking this city. It's called ruin because it's an easy target. They say it's an easy target. And that's probably why they only commit part of their forces. And it may be then if we take all this information together and kind of, it adds up to this, uh, maybe Achan's transgression is is not just him alone. It's more that he's symptomatic of a larger problem of overconfidence and this, you know, thought of easy plunder. You know, more, more like Aiken's just representative of a bigger problem. He's emblematic. Um, and it certainly seems this way because the language of this account seems to recall an earlier story from Numbers 14 in which the Israelites attacked the Amalekites without divine sanction and were defeated. Okay, so basically the same thing that happens in this story. Um, so the Israelite strike force is routed. And uh, here, here's the thing. Notice what it says in chapter 5. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. All right. So where have we heard words similar to that before in Joshua? Right? We heard that uh, back in Joshua 2. Remember, it's Rahab that uses those same words. And she's actually like quoting from like Exodus 15, which is like the song at the sea, you know, right after the Israelites had miraculously crossed the Reed Sea. You know, Moses sings this song. Rahab's like actually quoting from this song, uh, uh, you know, which is like pretty amazing that she's a Canaanite. But now in this stunning reversal um, of, uh, in I, what we have is not the uh, Canaanites who are melting in fear. We have the Israelites who are melting in fear. So there's been like this great reversal to the point that even Joshua is dismayed. So, you know, Joshua is kind of a flat character in the book of Joshua. But, you know, like up until this point, he's basically been like a, like a really solid guy. He's been kind of like a boring guy, uh, you know, especially in contrast to like Rahab, who's like awesome. But like Joshua has always been like, oh, this is a good dude. You know, you read it throughout and you're just like, cool, Joshua. Um, but listen to his words in verse 7. Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us to the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? 
would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Okay, so if you like read all these uh, stories like in the uh, um, in, in Exodus and Numbers, you know, like that's the same words. Uh, it sounds exactly like the words uh, of the Israelites, you know, when they're grumbling. Every time they encounter some sort of obstacle, they start thinking about like, you know, why did you leave us into the wilderness to die? You know, uh, why, why we would have been better off if we had been in Egypt. Were there not enough graves in Egypt, you know, that you had to take us out into the wilderness? You know, you almost think that the next words out of Joshua's mouth are are going to be something about them good leaks they had back in Egypt, you know. Uh, yeah, I love the the leaks thing. I, it's hilarious to me for some reason. Anyway, um, clearly though, the text wants us to see that this is a step back from the Israelites. Uh, they're, they've started grumbling and complaining and lack, lacking faith, just like their parents did uh, in the book of Exodus. And so God's response to Joshua's complaint is, well, Israel's sin. And the wording in verse 11 is that they have, is that they have transgressed the covenant. And that's like, like super strong language. That's not like, oops, I just like, you know, I kind of like messed up. This is like, this is like you went and you decided to serve another God. Uh, because transgressing a covenant is like, like pretty much the worst thing you can do in the ancient world. You know, you form these covenants and it's like taking like this divine oath. And when you, when you transgress the covenant, uh, what happens is you call upon yourself uh, the, the divine curses. And, you know, the idea is that it is a covenant forms an alliance. You're like allying. Uh, and, and so when you transgress it, it's basically like, well, I'm, I'm just uh, going to uh, instead um, make a deal with your enemy, you know, and, and that's when you break the covenant. It's like totally dis disloyalty. And so, you know, last week I was um, I was linking this practice of harem with idolatry. You know, the point of harem of destroying the devoted things is to get rid of idolatry. And the point of harem is to cleanse Canaan of its idolatry. And so Achan's failure to do so may explain the transgression of the covenant. But I think that the rest of the chapter points to the fact that all of Israel has failed to be loyal to God. It's just that Canaan, it's just that Achan is the most emblematic of this failure. And so uh, what we have in the chapter is God sets up this procedure to reveal the person at fault. And so gradually the perpetrator is narrowed down by casting lots, which is kind of a weird way to do things. But remember, they didn't have CSI Israel back then. So, you know, forensic evidence is pretty difficult. Uh, so first the tribe, then the clan, and finally, you know, the family, the grandfather, the, fa the father, and it's narrowed down to Achan himself. And all of this information was given to us in verse one. You know, we're told that Achan is from this tribe and from this clan and from this, you know, and you just kind of like read over it and just like, you know, try to get through that as fast as possible. But the fact that it's being repeated, I mean, we're told about this twice here is significant. Remember, anytime something's repeated in Hebrew narrative, we don't, we, we got to figure out like, okay, that's significant. Okay. Um, so what Joshua wants us to know about Achan is that he comes from a long line of Israelites. 
In fact, he can trace his ancestry back to Judah himself. So like Judah's like super important, you know, it's like the kingly line of Israel, right? So so what we are, we're seeing here is that Achan is a purebred Israelite, right? Like that's what we want to know. He's got a pedigree. Uh, yet uh, what the story is telling us is that doesn't stop God from punishing him for his transgression. He is stoned, uh, which is exactly what is prescribed by Deuteronomy for those who break the covenant by serving other gods. And so we see the seriousness of idolatry. And, and Joshua tells us that we, he, you know, we, we don't hesitate to uh, judge one of our own. And Achan's words um, in his confession follow exactly the command that was given in Deuteronomy. If you like, look at the verbs that he uses. Uh, his, uh, his, his confession is exactly like from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, forbidden the taking of gold and silver from Canaan. So, you know, I I mean, it seems like super harsh uh, what happens to Achan, except that like the book of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that like God was not going to be happy when this happened. Like this was like very clearly spelled out. Like Achan like absolutely should have known it. Um, Do not covet the silver or the gold that is on them and take it for yourself because you could be ensnared by it. For it is abhorrent to the Lord. Do not bring an abhorrent thing into your house, or you will be set apart for destruction like it. And so what has happened here is that this purebred Israelite has become Canaanized, okay? He's become like Canaan. He's become like the idols. In fact, uh, here's here's a cool fact here. The name Achan isn't really a Hebrew name. It doesn't make like sense. Is like a Hebrew word. Okay, which is weird since his pedigree is being established. It's kind of like it's like nonsense, you know. And uh, when this, uh, in fact, uh, this incident is recalled later in the book of Chronicles. So, like Chronicles is like a really late work of um, of of in the Old Testament. Probably like you know maybe Daniel's like the latest, but like um, like Chronicles is next. And when Chronicles talks about this incident. It actually changes his name to Achor, which is like a normal Hebrew name. So why would this do this? Like, why would you introduce this like obviously weird name here? Well, here's the thing. Uh, there's there's three letters. Achan is spelled with three letters because you remember in Hebrew, uh, they don't have vowels because you don't need them. Vowels are stupid. Okay, don't need vowels at all. I don't know why we have them. Greeks like had to have them or something like that. But the three letters that make up Achan's name are actually the same three letters that are found in the word Canaan. Okay, it's like it's an anagram of Canaan. All right. And uh, notice also uh, here that uh, Achan confesses to stealing a cloak of, look at the word, of Shinar. Okay. So if you're a Bible nerd, think about like, where have you heard Shinar? All right. So Shinar is the land where the the Tower of Babel story takes place in Genesis 11. Uh, so, so what we have here is Achan being associated with this monumental act of rebellion, you know, kind of like this proto, you know, act of rebellion against God and also the founding of the city of Babylon, which, you know, is pretty bad. So uh, despite Achan's pedigree, uh, he has been linked to everything that Israel opposes. He's been linked to idolatry. He's been linked to Canaan. He's been linked to Babylon. Uh, but it gets worse, though. 
Okay, because if we look at how the book of Joshua is structured after, you know, we have this introduction in chapter one, we have the story of Rahab in chapter two. And that story is actually concluded in chapter six with the salvation of, uh, uh, of Rahab and her family. So chapter two starts with Rahab, chapter six ends with Rahab. And so that's kind of a contained unit. So they didn't have chapters and verses, you know, so they, they, they did this thing called a uh, inclusio, okay, where they, they start with something and it was something and you know to block it off in your mind, okay? So Rahab kind of blocks off chapters uh, two through six. Now, now we're in a new section, we're in like a new chapter, so to speak, of the story, a new movement. And the book of Joshua has been kind of setting up these parallels with that previous section. Okay, so what, are, what where are the parallels? So both the stories of Achan and Rahab begin on the eve of a battle, right? So one for I, one from Jericho. The drama of both stories starts, it begins by sending out spies. In both stories, something are hidden. In the story of Rahab, it's the spies that are hidden. In the story of Achan, it's the objects that were devoted to the harem. Yet, the point here is the similarities. You're supposed to read these stories together, okay? You're supposed to see them as similar, but in doing so, we notice even more the differences, the contrasts, okay? Rather than a victory like at Jericho, the Israelites suffer a defeat at Ai. Rahab, who's like the ultimate outsider, you know, a prostitute, a woman, a Canaanite, she confesses the true God. Achan, who is this like highly pedigreed insider who can trace his family line all the way back to Judah, confesses the sin of covetousness and theft. Okay, so his confession is that, you know, he's broken like two of the commandments. Rahab's courage leads to the salvation of not only herself, but also her entire family. Achan's greed leads to the death of his whole family. So in a strange twist here, what the story is trying to show is that Rahab has kind of become Israel. She's one of us. But Achan, who we would think should be like this, like perfect Israelite, is not Israel. Instead, he's been made into one of them. Rahab confesses and worships the true God. And therefore, her identity is no longer defined by her profession or her ethnicity. But Achan, as, as, as demonstrated by his actions, has shown that he is an idolater. The pursuit of wealth has become his identity. And so Rahab is totally accepted. She's integrated fully into the community, but Achan is violently cut off from the community. And the, the beauty of this um, is that both of these stories run totally counter to the expectations of maybe what an Israelite hearing this story would think about a Canaanite and an Israelite, who a Canaanite and an Israelite are supposed to be. They they totally challenge and subvert their identities. The Israelites uh, who heard this would be forced to question all their ideas about what it means to be God's chosen people. Are the Canaanites really different than us? 
Who is eligible uh, for retribution? Who is eligible for grace? Uh, these stories call all of that into everything you know you would think you would know about that into question. They blur the lines of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and who is us and who is them. And you got to think about how much, how jarring this must have been in like a fiercely tribalistic society like the ones of the ancient world. So we see that another boundary has been erased in the book of Joshua here. Uh, like I said, Joshua is all about boundaries, but it's also about like messing those boundaries up. And so again, we see in Joshua the importance of worship as illustrated by these two characters. Worship of the true God saves, but idolatry leads to defeat and death. Idolatry is very serious. It's like the big problem in the Old Testament and really the New because its entrapment is seductive. It corrupts the whole community. You know, in, in our world, we would just we just give a different name to this. We would call it systemic, a systemic problem. You know, we hear like like racism is a systemic problem. Maybe I'm not individually racist, but I support a system that's systemic of it, and therefore I'm participating somehow in that sin. I think this is the idea that's going on here. This is the this is the idea of idolatry. It's bondage, and it, it ultimately it's bondage prevents the fulfillment of God's plan for the flourishing in life of in His creation, and that's why it has to be radically dealt with. You know, I think Jesus says just the same thing. If if you think about you know His great magnum opus on this subject of a society based on life and flourishing is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. Uh, it, Jesus is talking about the radicalness of dealing with idolatry. And it's partly because it's like a, it, it's an hindrance to the blessing that God actually intends for his creation. So how do we take this story about like stoning like this guy and about idolatry and all these weird concepts and casting lots and everything like that. How do we apply this to the church? Well, I think we can actually. Um, first, I think we have to acknowledge the radical danger of idolatry. Uh, you know, we, we would just call these by different names. We would say, you know, like money, power, and sex. Those are, those are our big ones. Jesus says no man can serve two, two masters. We can't truly be an Israelite and yet hide the plunder. We can't come to church on Sunday and spend the whole rest of the week in the service in, uh, of the idols of our day. We can't do it. We need to realize the seriousness of that. Second, I think we've got to be alert to the fact that idolatry can affect our community. You know, it doesn't take much mental effort to, to think of examples of church leaders in recent years that have brought down their whole communities by chasing money, power, and sex. I mean, there's a whole podcast right now that is very popular that is about this very subject. Uh, most of the time, these leaders are able to gain power and influence uh, despite their weaknesses because they had a name or they had charisma or they were dynamic speakers or they were taught correct doctrine. You know, that's what's important for us. For Israelites, it, it was like, you know, who's your mama and daddy, right? Like, who's your family? You know, that's why the pedigree is so important for Achan. 
not as big a deal for us, although we could probably think of some examples of that. But still, you know, the same idea. Uh, their followers over, you know, these people, their followers overlook their, their faults because of their strengths. But no man can serve two masters. And th- third, I think we need to understand that sinful idolatry can be systemic. So we tend to focus on individuals like, you know, greedy executives or lecherous pastors or power-hungry leaders who trample over anything that gets in their way. However, I wonder if one of the reasons uh, that this narrative kind of shifts back and forth between corporate and individual transgressions is precisely because it wants to wrestle with these ideas about who is responsible. In this story, Aiken is not just a bad apple that might spoil the bunch. Aiken is acting in an environment that allows for and promotes transgression. So when we give power in our society to our idols, for example, by desiring wealth or power for the church, we should not be surprised when some people do bad things, even if we are not the ones doing it individually. It's systemic. And part of the point of the story of Joshua is that we need to uncover the hidden idolatrous influences in our community. Uh, And and right now, I think we're in like this kind of cultural moment uh, in evangelicalism, specifically where people are doing this work. I mean, you know, think about recently, several people have written books or done podcasts that are kind of on this subject. And I know many of you are like deeply have been deeply engaged in these recently, you know. So I think that the church is kind of becoming aware of this. You know, it's not just about us individually. It's also about our community and what we value. So listen to how Paul makes the same point in our sermon text from Philippians. Uh, And and remember, this text in Philippians 3, this is right after Paul has exhorted the congregation to have the same mind as Christ. And he's fleshed out uh, what that mind looks like with with the words of that beautiful hymn in Philippians 2 that like it seems like we can't go two months at Resurrection Church without referring to. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He humbled himself become obedient by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, you know, that beautiful hymn in Philippians. So, so when Paul uh, gets to Philippians chapter 3 and he meditates on those words and he looks at them in his own life, in his own situation, he says, if anyone else he thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the uh, 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 of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see what Paul's doing here is saying, I have the pedigree. You know, I'm just like, just like Achan had that like beautiful family line that was like clearly links him with, you know, Judah and everything like that. Achan has that pedigree, but just like Achan, it's not enough for Paul. What is needed is the confession and loyalty and faith of Rahab. For Paul, none of these things matter. The only thing that matters is knowing Christ. Everything else for Paul is rubbish. And that includes beautiful cloaks from Shinar and shekels worth of gold and silver. And so I think the solution for us is the same as for Paul. 
If we want to avoid idolatry, we must look at the idols of the world and we must realize their insignificance. Only then can we refuse to give them power. And so we must be able to look at them and declare them rubbish. And the way we do this is we learn about and we meditate and we focus and we have our lives shaped and we practice and we follow Christ. Just like for Paul, that's what the answer is for us. To know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And by doing so, we shine the light in the darkness. The darkness of idolatry, knowing that the darkness cannot overcome it.